I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 9 and continue reading through the entire chapter of chapter 10. This is God's holy, inerrant, powerful, and life-transforming word. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. It was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was a found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his words, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. I really enjoyed a week or so ago the new movie called The Martian. 
It's about an astronaut that gets left behind on Mars by his crew after they think that he's died. And so he has to figure out how to survive for years on that barren planet with only the equipment and supplies that his crew brought with them for 30 days. And he also has to figure out how he's going to get back to Earth. The story is a testimony to human intelligence and ingenuity. It reminded me very much of another movie that I also enjoyed many years ago called Castaway. I'm sure many of you or most of you have seen the movie. Tom Hanks plays a FedEx employee who crashes. His name's Chuck, and he's in a plane crash in the South Pacific, and he eventually washes up on the shore of a, an uninhabited island. And Chuck also has to learn how to survive for years using only the limited resources of the island and whatever small items washed up on shore with him from the plane crash. And Chuck has to figure out how to get home. Throughout the course of that movie, the main thing that sustains Chuck through those many months and years of suffering and struggle is his love for his fiance Kelly. He was able to, he had with him just a small picture of her, and he kind of creates a shrine for her, and as the picture fades over the years, that love for Kelly is what motivated him to hold on, to keep fighting, struggling, to find some way to get back to civilization and get back to her. Well, there are a lot of similar survival stories. Those stories are kind of patterned after Robinson Crusoe or Swiss Family Robinson. A lot of survival stories like that. But what makes Castaway unique, and I think in some ways better than some of those stories, is its bittersweet ending. Now, I'm going to give a spoiler alert here. So if you haven't seen Castaway, plug your ears for a couple of minutes while I talk about the ending. First of all, Chuck survives. That shouldn't surprise you. Nobody would go to watch those movies if the guy doesn't survive at the end. But when Chuck gets home, he goes back to find Kelly, of course. That's what's kept him alive. And when he finds her, she thought he was dead. So she went on with her life, met a new guy, married him, has a child, has a happy home. And I don't know if you're like me, the first time I saw that movie, I thought, what an emotional gut punch. What a, I mean, we're trained by Disney to expect happily ever after in every one of these kinds of movies. But Chuck's left in despair because his, the love of his life, the reason that he survived is gone. We go to movies to escape reality, not to face it. We face enough reality every day. But what's fascinating to me is that the basic message of that movie is really the same message that we've been studying in the book of Ecclesiastes. That through determination and wisdom, as we'll talk about this morning, ingenuity, we can fight hard, work hard, and we can survive. And we can even succeed in this life under the sun. But there's no guarantee of a happy ending. That is the message of Ecclesiastes. Matter of fact, Ecclesiastes goes a little bit further. Ecclesiastes says, 
he can guarantee that there is no happy ending under the sun. A lot of people go to church, too, to escape reality. Don't want to go there and face reality, so I'm sure that uh, in those churches, the book of Ecclesiastes isn't spoken about very much. But here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher-teacher, the one we call Professor Q, Koheleth in Hebrew, he is one to teach us what the worldview without revelation from God looks like. What if what's under the sun is all that there is? We believe that God created the world, that God established the world, but in Q's universe, God is not spoken from above the sun. We could all, in his research, all he did was look at what he could observe with his five senses under the sun. And we've already seen that in all of his research, that wisdom is the best thing he's found under the sun. Wisdom has the greatest value. In chapter 2, we studied this, that's why I call this Wisdom Under the Sun Part 2, because we already looked at this in chapter 2, in that passage, it says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And when we looked at that passage, we said that wisdom is more than knowledge, obviously. Sometimes we struggle to make a distinction between wisdom and, and knowledge. Well, wisdom is based upon knowledge, but wisdom is more than knowledge. It begins with knowledge, but you've got to add to knowledge the ability to apply that knowledge well to the world, to apply that knowledge well to your life. That's what wisdom is. And I'm not just talking about in your job or in your school. I'm talking about all areas of life, relationships, hobbies, career, whatever it is in your life, every aspect of life, being able to take what you know and apply it well. Likewise, being foolish isn't a lack of knowledge. Matter of fact, some of the most knowledgeable people in the world are actually foolish, according to Q and really the rest of Scripture. Because it's not just having a lot of knowledge, it's being able to apply it well. And so the foolish are those who do not apply what they know well to their lives. But chapter 2, we studied that chapter, you remember, there is a bittersweet ending to that story as well. As valuable as wisdom is, there's no happy ending, even when you search it out. He says, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been very wise? For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. How the wise dies just like the fool. And then he comes to his oft-repeated conclusion, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In other words, there is no happy ending under the sun, if that's all that there is. No matter how wise, no matter how resilient, no matter how persevering, no matter how successful you may be under the sun, we will all eventually die and be forgotten. And so everything under the sun is ultimately meaningless. That's the conclusion that Q comes to over and over again. So Q actually illustrates this all with his own story, his own survival story about a forgotten hero. Look at verse 14 of chapter 9. He says there that, and he's talking about from his own experience, he, he once saw a small city with a small population surrounded by the armies of a great king. 
And this king intended to basically wipe this little village, this little town off the map. And so he set up great siege works, it says, to prevent people from escaping from the city, from out over the, or through the, the city walls, and also to prevent any supplies from coming in. That's how a siege works. And so you get this picture of this small population, this small city surrounded by these massive armies of this great king, and they're starving, and they're losing all hope. And into this scene, he says, very simply, almost frustratingly simply, he says, there, there was, remember, um, the wording exactly is that there was found among them a poor wise man, and he somehow delivered the city. Now, Q, very wise man, very intelligent man, but he's not a great storyteller. He doesn't give us any of the details. He doesn't flesh any of it out. He doesn't want us to get caught up in what the wise man's plan was, what thing he invented, what weapon he constructed. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to get caught up in the details. He wants us to focus on what was the means by which this poor man, the reason he emphasizes he's poor, he had no other resources. He had nothing to offer but his wisdom. But this wise plan that he offered to the city somehow, against all odds, delivered the city from this powerful king. The city was delivered through wisdom. And so he's, again, he's illustrating the fact that wisdom is the most powerful thing, the greatest thing, the most valuable thing under the sun. But, lest we celebrate the victory too much, he never wants us to celebrate, he ends with the bad news at the end of verse 15. It says, yet no one remembered that poor man. And that's really his point. The city was saved. The poor man had his 15 minutes of fame. He probably got his name on a building somewhere in town. But eventually, he died and was forgotten. And that's really the moral of the story for Q. Wisdom has great value in the present, in the temporary. But as a long-term hope, it's all meaningless. It's all chasing after the wind. Sometimes feel sorry for George Washington these days. I saw a few years ago, they did a survey in Oklahoma of high school students and they gave them basically a test that every U.S. citizen, somebody who wants to be a U.S. citizen, has to pass. Only one out of four of the high school students in Oklahoma could identify the first president of the United States. One out of four. If they don't, if high school seniors, high school students don't remember George Washington, what hope do you or I have of having any impact, of being remembered, of of feeling like our life had significance if George Washington isn't even remembered these days. And that's really what Q's point is here. Still, there is a little bit of glimmer of hope in verse 16. Wisdom is better than might, though a poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Everything we know is temporary, everything turns to dust in the end, but in the here and now, in the present, your best life now is to pursue wisdom, to live a life of wisdom. And so that's how we move into chapter 10. And chapter 10 is really just a, a collection of Proverbs. In that chapter, we have basically a bunch of sayings, just like the book of Proverbs. A, a bunch of seemingly unrelated, although there's often a theme that ties them together. But just observations about life under the sun, and in this case, particularly contrasting and comparing wisdom and foolishness. And the purpose of us going through this, these Proverbs is to show us the high value of wisdom and to warn us against pursuing foolishness under the sun. 
So I'm going to take a minute to look at some of them. There's not time to address all of them, but I want to give you at least a, a, a taste for what that wisdom looks like. And as we said, according to Scripture, foolishness is the absence of wisdom. So Q basically gives us this contrast. And one of the things, first things he says in verse 1 is how, yes, wisdom is far more valuable than foolishness. But there is a sense in which foolishness is more powerful than wisdom. It's in its destructive sense. He says in verse 1, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. That's where we get that phrase, a fly in the ointment. It's, it's that idea that a perfumer could work really hard to get this really sweet-selling ointment, this oil, and of course that was really important. We've talked about that before, how important this kind of perfumed oil was in that day and age, that kind of stinky, dirty age of the Old Testament, that they needed that. And, you know, he would work really hard, maybe develop a, a, a pot of it or a vat of it, and then turns his back for a second, looks back, and there's a bunch of dead flies at the top. And it ruins all of his work. And again, this is just a parable, so to speak, to show that no matter how wisely you live your life, no matter how hard you work to be wise and successful under the sun, either your own foolish actions or the foolish actions of somebody else can ruin it in an instant. He's just giving us that little wake-up call that we are not as in control as we think we are. No matter how hard Esau worked to retain his status and position as the firstborn of Isaac, it only took one moment of hunger and a foolish deal over a bowl of stew to ruin it all for him. It takes a lifetime, they say, to build a good reputation, and it only takes one impulsive act and a moment of foolishness to ruin it. And we get confirmation of that in the headlines every day. But Q never wants us to lose sight of the fact that no matter how much foolishness is at work under the sun to destroy the good work of wisdom, wisdom is still far better. It is what we are to pursue. And so his first point is that wisdom guides our way while foolishness leads us astray. And I didn't really mean to rhyme that, but it does rhyme. Woolishness, foolishness leads you astray, but wisdom guides your way. Look at verse 2. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. As a lifelong left-handed person, that verse hurts. But I understand that he's not really meaning to insult left-handers. He's just reflecting, and he's speaking like the Bible often does, in cultural terms, in, in ways that the culture can understand. And that's one thing that's, that's almost universal in world culture, is that left-handers are seen as abnormal, often in a derogatory way. Did you ever know that the word sinister in English comes from the Latin for left, on the left or left-handed? You know, that, that prejudice, I've lived with it all my life. Some of you have lived with it all your life. That every culture has had it. It's nothing new. And I do, in a sense, understand it because if most of the people in the world are right-handed, there's a sense, a very limited sense, in which you can say that right-handed people are then the norm. They're the normal. But then left-handers are abnormal, not in any moral morality sense, not in any ability sense. We're just abnormal. We're not the norm. And that's how... The Bible is using it, that there is a normal to life and there's an abnormal. And what he's saying is that the wise person will seek the norm while the foolish person speaks the abnormal, seeks the abnormal. 
Well, what norm is he talking about? That's really the question. It's actually the most important question, most important question for you to ask. You see, in Q's worldview, there's a creator, a wise, powerful, and as we've seen before, sovereign creator. He does not allow for any word from the creator, but he believes that he exists and that the world has been set up according to his wisdom, that what is wise under the sun reflects what is wise in the mind of, of our creator. And so what is normal is what our creator intended for the world, what he, how he designed us to be, how he designed the world to be. That is what's normal. God, the creator, designed us and the world to work in specific ways. And the terms that we use biblically for those normal ways are righteousness, justice, and wisdom. That's the norm. And in this day and age, and I know I've grown up and lived in the, in the spirit of the age of subjectivity and relativity when it comes to norms, when it comes to truth and absolutes. But a biblical worldview, and even Q's worldview, as limited as it is, recognizes that there is a, an objective norm by which everything is to be measured. And it's been determined by God. Now Moses talked about this when he gave the law of God. I never know. I've been studying Ecclesiastes now for months, and I'm still not sure in Q's worldview how much he takes into account the revealed law of God, because again, he doesn't take into consideration a word from above the sun, but I think at very least he recognizes that the creator has installed a sense of natural law that can be observed, and he's also writing in the context of is, uh, the culture of Israel, so I wonder sometimes if he's allowing the, the written law to be the definition of that natural law that the creator has instilled in creation. But anyway, all that aside, this is what Moses said about the law in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He said, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me so that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Did you hear Moses say where wisdom comes from? It's from knowing the principles, the statutes, the laws that God has given, and doing them. In other words, knowledge plus application equals wisdom. They will know you are a wise people because you know the laws that the Creator has established and you apply them to your life. You do them, and that makes you wise. And so that's what Q, that's the perspective Q is writing from. And so Q is not at all hesitant, and we've seen this in many of the other chapters in Ecclesiastes, he's not at all hesitant to say that the fool is lazy, angry, prideful, full of empty words, and disobedient, because he's all, always, in all those cases, using what we were designed to be and to do as the standard, as the norm. And so, to go to the right is to go in the path of what's normal by God's definition is to go in the paths of righteousness. To go to the left is to deviate from that, to go another way, to depart from what God has revealed to be true under the sun. I think it's something for us, it sounds like such a simple concept, biblical concept, and something you've learned in Sunday school, but we have to keep reminding ourselves of this. 
when you sit, when you turn on your television or you listen to the radio or online or just in the workplace among your friends and all these debates come up, everything that everybody's debating these days, things like foreign policy and health care and abortion and sexual practices, understand that all of those debates are a debate between what is wise and what is foolish by the standard that the creator has established. That's what the debate is about. That there is an objective standard and what we're debating about, whether both parties or either party recognizes it, is what is wise and what is foolish as God has designed it. It's important we remember that. Because that's what we're to seek after, is to what is wise. And we speak with that authority. That is what is right. There is a right answer to all those questions. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to discern those answers. That applying what God has designed things to be, applying that is often very difficult in some of these issues. So I'm not trying to say that these debates are easily resolved. I'm just saying that what we're seeking is that one right answer as God designed it. So as Q goes on then to apply it to a couple important areas of life, ones that will relate to us very strongly just in, in the 21st century, just as it did in the middle of the Old Testament era, he addresses two different areas, both where we, how we work and how we, the words that we use. First of all, how we work. Look at verse 10. He says, The wise man will sharpen his axe and make sure that he's prepared to do his work. Whereas the fool doesn't sharpen his axe, therefore he has to work much harder and much longer to accomplish the same results. He's just using that as an example. That wisdom means that you prepare. That you practice. That you make sure your tools are ready. That you are disciplined and self-controlled in how you go about your work. That that's wise in order to be successful under the sun. In verse 18 he says, Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. The point that he's making there is obvious, that if we do not, if we're not wise in taking care of our responsibilities, and here particularly our household, there is going to be a gradual falling apart of the things in our lives. And it, we see that foolishness at work in our own lives. We look around our house and look at things we're allowing to fall apart, that we're not maintaining wisely. And that's foolishness. That's just an example he's using, that in work, we need to seek wisdom so that we might persevere and succeed under the sun, maybe, because he never guarantees any happy ending. Secondly, he talks about the words that we use in verse 12. He says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool's lips of a fool consume him. So the words that we use are either creating favor or consuming us, one or the other, either building or destroying the words we use. And we need to apply the principles of wisdom so that we use our words well. I like literally in the Hebrew, it says there that a wise man's words are grace. I like that. I wish they'd left it that way in English translations. They felt like they had to, to add some interpretation to it. But, I, but I just, they should have left it that way because I think it's there, you know, I, that's just a great idea that the words of a wise man are grace. And it reminds me of what Paul said in Ephesians 4 where he says that the words that we use are to be good for building up that they may give grace to those who hear. That the, that that's what it means to be wise with your words, is that what you say builds up yourself and others and imparts grace to those who hear them. That's the way that we use words wisely. It's the same thing Q is saying here. That's why Jesus says that 
the words of our mouth come from the overflow of our hearts. They reflect the inclination of our hearts. Are we inclined to the right, to what is normal according to God? Or are our hearts inclined to the left, what is abnormal, what is away from the will of God? Our words will reflect our hearts and will be known by the words that we use. James says that the tongue is like a rudder that directs the course of your life. Well, this foolishness, if it takes over in our lives, not only does damage to us, but does damage to the people around us. But if foolishness begins to spread throughout a community, then you see serious damage. And so he moves from the individual to the nation or to the group. And he talks about how wisdom blesses the nation, but foolishness destroys it. And he talks about an upside-down society again. Remember we said that in when we studied our last time a couple weeks ago, that the world under the sun, according to the principles that God created it for, is upside down because of sin. And we see this upside-down society described in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 10. Let me read those again. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Again, he's speaking in cultural language. In that culture, in the midst of Old Testament times, there were only three categories of people who used horses as their normal, normal mode of travel. That would be either if you were extremely wealthy, or you were nobility, royalty, or if you were a part of the military. And those, in any other category of life, you expected to walk wherever you went. But especially if you talk about somebody riding on a horse and somebody walking alongside, those people walking alongside the wealthy or noble or military leader, the people walking alongside would be his servants. And so that's the picture he's portraying there. And he's saying, look at how the world is upside down. You've got people who should be in those positions of authority and responsibility who are actually serving as slaves. People who are wise are serving as slaves, whereas fools are riding the horses. Fools are in the place, in place of authority, positions of authority, riding the horses in society. And notice that he says that this error, this evil error, proceeds from the ruler. In other words, just as we still have the problem of governmental appointments, you've got basically a king who's putting his cronies, his, he's foolish, and he's putting people who lead like he leads in positions of authority, so it corrupts the whole society. And so he says in verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. And he's not talking chronological age there. He's talking about immaturity. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. What's the problem with feasting in the morning? Morning's not the time for feasting. Not in that culture. Feasting for, was for when your work was done. It was to strengthen you for the next day's work. But these fools, appointed by a foolish king, were feasting and getting drunk in the morning instead of working and serving the people. Maturity, biblically speaking, is a part of wisdom. Wisdom produces maturity. And woe to a nation that has foolish and immature leaders. And that's not just true of the nation. Of course, the nation in Old Testament era really was the church in many ways. But in our era, you know, what is true of the nation is also true in the church. The New Testament teaches us not to lay hands on someone hastily to be a leader, to be an officer in the church. Make sure that they have spiritual maturity. Make sure that they 
are wise and mature before you make them leaders. When Paul gives qualifications for elders and deacons in the books of, of Timothy and Titus, he gives us, I've summarized those in basically 15 characteristics that you look for in a leader. And 13 of those 15 characteristics of a leader for the church all deal with character, all deal with reflecting what wisdom expects of us. And so that's what leadership is to look like. And that's why in verse 17, this is what, make this your prayer for this church, for the church of Christ in general, and for this nation, especially as we're in an election season, make this your prayer that we would be able to say, happy or blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. In other words, that they be wise, mature leaders who understand that they are public servants, that they are there, that that's what what wisdom is according to God's design for the family, for the church, and for the nation, that wisdom means that those who lead are servants, that they serve those that they are responsible for, that they shepherd the people under their authority, not that they fleece the sheep, not that they are self-indulgent and immature and appoint people who are like themselves. Well, how do we deal then with Foolish leaders, if that is so much the character of leadership under the sun. Well, verse 20 reminds us what he said before. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for the bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Don't curse the king. We saw this before. He says, just as the New Testament apostles tell us, honor the king. Don't curse the king. Honor the king. Not because he's an honorable person. Most likely, there's a lot of fools. But honor the king because God has appointed him. And you're honoring the position, not the fool who inhabits the position. And submit insofar as you're able. Submit insofar as you don't disobey your God. That's the principle. Cube teaches that, and the whole rest of Scripture teaches that. Well, let me get back then. That's just a sampling of some of the wisdom some of the thoughts on wisdom that Hugh gives in chapter 10. But let me get back to the main point of the whole section, which is that wisdom is by far the most valuable thing under the sun. And believe me, Pe Professor Q investigated everything far, to a far greater extent than you and I ever have. And wisdom is by far the best that we are to devote ourselves to, to gaining wisdom. It is your best life now. But there are no happy endings. No matter how wise you become and no matter how much success it brings to your life, ultimately wisdom is going to be ignored, quickly forgotten, or ruined by your own foolish actions or the foolish actions of others. So what's our best hope under the sun? If under the sun is all that there is, what's the best hope? Obviously pursue wisdom, but what else? Do you notice we have our carpe diem, carpe diem statement again? We've been saying this over and over again. It almost always includes a carpe diem uh, statement, which is seize the day. And that's in verse 19. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Work hard. Seek wisdom. Work hard. Be successful if God allows you that opportunity. And enjoy. Feast. Enjoy good food. Enjoy good drink. But understand that once the moment's gone, it's gone, and there's no guarantee that there's going to be another one under the sun. 
Well, this is the point in the sermon where we're supposed to ask the question, but Q, isn't there something more than what's under the sun? He wants us to ask that question. That's the whole point of him writing this. He wants us to ask that question. Isn't there something more than what's under the sun? Let me take you back to that passage we read responsively in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read a portion of it to you again. Listen to it in light of Q's advice. 1 Corinthians 1, I'll begin in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see, that's what the rest of Scripture reveals to us, is that Christ is the full wisdom of God. Hugh gives us a very partial wisdom, but Christ is the fullness of wisdom. We said that God's very character, God's very nature, defines what is good and right and normal. It's the standard by which we measure that God himself is the truth, and all truth is related to him as the essence of truth. So Christ, therefore, being the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the full wisdom of God. And more than that, he is the revelation of the plan of God that is behind all the incomprehensible activities that happen under under the sun. And Christ came to bring to us that plan called the covenant of grace, whereby God would save us through an atoning sacrifice, through the death of a perfect one who would die in our place and thereby conquer death, pay the full price of sin, and then be raised from the dead with our justification. Basically, he died for us, bore the penalty that our sins deserved, and then was raised from the dead. And as we put our faith in him, he takes our sin, we receive his righteousness by faith, And thereby, God accepts us not just for our time under the sun, but for all eternity. That's the wisdom of God that Q is missing, that the rest of Scripture is intended to reveal. Jesus is the full wisdom of God. You see, the writers of the movie Castaway blew it at the end. It's a good movie. But if I could do anything to that movie, I would beg for some good writer to rewrite the ending because they dropped the ball there. I love the fact that they didn't wrap it up with a big happily ever ending when he got back, when Chuck got back to civilization after being stranded on that desert island. But remember that Chuck was driven. The reason he persevered, the reason he fought through it, the reason that he survived was because he was living for his love for Kelly, his fiancée. And the bittersweet ending is that that love wasn't there for him when he got back to civilization. 
I wish the movie had had the guts to, at that point, explore that and say, here's a guy who has lived for the love of this woman for all these years. It's driven him. It's, it's enabled him to survive. And here he is back in his normal life and normal civilization, and that's gone. What's he going to live for now? Do you know how they drop the ball? How does the movie end? He meets another woman. Salvation by woman. Men throughout history have tried to find salvation through women. Women through history have tried to find salvation through men. There are tons of people out there in the world right now living by that gospel. That if I can just find the right woman, if I can just find the right man, I will have everything I need. My life will have meaning and purpose. And that's the gospel the movie ends with. When they should have pointed to the wisdom of God, which is Jesus Christ. Wisdom can't save us. Romantic relationships cannot save us, no matter what all the pop songs will tell you. You see, Chuck's fiance, Kelly, was unworthy of being his God, of being the one for whom he lived. She was unworthy of that. He should have never made her that. He shouldn't have lived for her. You see, she thought Chuck was dead, so she moved on. But Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, looked upon us when we were dead in our sin. And he loved us, and he died for us. He cleansed us of all our sins, and he brought us to life again so that we will live for him, with him, in this life, under the sun, and when we die, it all gets better, and we go to be with him. You see, he's one worth living for. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the only one that is worthy for us to live for him. All that's under the sun is not all there is for us. He will be there for us when that day to die comes for us. And we will go to be with him, and we will be perfect, and we will be in that great relationship with him for all, for all time. There are no happy endings under the sun, but there is this incredible happy, happy ending beyond the grave if we put our faith in Christ. Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's a Savior worth living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing him to us by your spirit and by your word. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we still try to live for other people. We try to live for our career. We try to live for our own pride's sake. We try to live for the pleasures that this world under the sun offers to us. But Christ is the only one that we should live for. He is the only one that can fulfill all those promises, not just now, but for all eternity. Thank you for sending him to make this all possible. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.